So it was Justice Potter Stewart who said about obscenity in a legal ruling, I can't define it, but I know it when I see it. That kind of slipperiness can sometimes, in a positive way, be attached to defining spirituality. There are many words, many words that point the way, sort of like fingers pointing to the moon, but the fingers are not themselves. The words are the best we can use to get to the basis of that reality. So how do we know when we see authentic, genuine, real spirituality? How do we know when we can really name the genuine article? Well, today I want to say that it is generosity. Generosity, the virtue of generosity that allows us to see the real, genuine, living embodiment of true spirituality. Generosity helps us realize what Emerson said, the question he asked for all of us, that why can't we, why ought not we, have a truly original relationship with this universe? What Emerson is talking about is real intimacy with life, really belonging to this existence. Now, some religious traditions say it is actually the degree to which that we are separate from each other, not connected, not intimate with this life, that makes religious living distinctive. Now, in a time in which some folks legitimately, some folks out of a sense of paranoia, are worrying and wondering about the swine flu, and like I said, we do have all those little containers all around for you to keep your hands clean. In a time like this, it can seem okay, even a little realistic, to want to keep some good boundaries away from each other. But ultimately, that separation is an illusion. And ultimately, if that separation becomes an obsession, it will rob from us the full promise of this life that we are each and every one of us called to live. Years ago, I think probably literally for me half a lifetime ago, well before I ever had it in my mind, that I wanted to be a minister, I had another image in my mind of what a minister did, Reverend Jerry Falwell. <laughs> I was watching him on TV, and I don't like to speak ill of the dead, but he said it, and I'm just repeating it. So please know this comes with no malice whatsoever. Now, he was preaching this particular sermon in a context in which I can understand. It was the age of Swaggart and Jim Baker, and he was very concerned, rightfully so. Not just right-wing clergy, but progressive clergy are also concerned with what are healthy boundaries for ministers. Swaggart and Baker are not good examples of healthy boundaries. So what Falwell was saying is that above all else, a pastor must be above reproach, especially, he said, especially, he said, with regard to women, not their wives. Now, this is before Ted Haggard had entered the picture, so perhaps we could expand that a little bit. They must avoid all controversy, must avoid even the appearance of impropriety. And he gave this example. This is what sticks in my mind to this day. He gave this example, which is that if he was driving down the street on a very, very rainy day, I mean, just downpours, people getting soaked on the street, almost no one on the street, and as he was driving along in his car, he saw a woman sitting on an outdoor 
bus kiosk waiting for the bus to arrive and she was just sitting there on this park bench getting drenched. And it wasn't just that he recognized this woman, he actually knew her. It turns out this was one of his co-workers' wives. He said his response to this would be, lock the door and keep on driving. Because he did not want it to be the case that anyone could ever see him, Jerry Falwell, paragon of rectitude, be seen in his car driving around with a woman, not his wife. I mean, my God, what would people say? Now, what this worldview, what this perspective has to do with a first century Jewish Palestinian rabbi who preached a message of peace and love and reconciliation and forgiveness and courted controversy all the time by hanging out with the outcasts of his day and those people who were despised by that society and practiced such intimacy with life that he forgave his own executioners at his own execution. What that worldview of Jerry Falwell has to do with the founder of his religion, I have no possible clue and way to answer that. But according to a certain dogmatic kind of rule-based religion, of rules and appearances about what purity is and how important purity is and the fact that purity is the best thing in life, I suppose what he did is the correct thing to do if you adopt that worldview. But the reason for this message series about some classical virtues is that mature religion is not about the kind of religion that tells you what to do. As if you could look up in the scripture as a source book, almost in the back in the index, and say, what do I do about an X situation? Boom, it gives me the answer. In fact, many of you are here today because you left religions like that. You did not want to be told what you must do in any given circumstance. Rather... Mature religion, mature spirituality is about, rather than following a rule book, it is about the invitation to become a certain kind of person, a person of character, what the ancients called the virtues. And unlike Reverend Falwell's rules, which are concerned with avoiding punishment, virtues are about realizing actual happiness in this life. Generosity is a way for us to fully realize that. As in fact, many of the 19th century universalist preachers talked about, there is an absolute connection. They are in fact one in the same thing, a kind of trinity between happiness and holiness and goodness. Happiness is not something that we have to struggle and suffer and berate ourselves about in order to be good. Happiness, wholeness, and goodness all went together in their view of life. And these are our ancestors, and they too were concerned about character and virtue. So generosity is not a rule. Generosity is not something that someone else tells you to do. Generosity is about entering that flow of life, that larger flow of life, in such a way that that flow of life comes back to you as well. Generosity is not just about individual actions. Generosity is about that place where our individual actions meet and are complemented by the actions of this world and each other, and we find those places of synchronicity. And generosity is much more than the act of just giving. Because I must tell you, over the years I have met many people who give out of obligation. They give out of guilt. 
They give out of a sense of coercion or they give out of a sense that maybe, maybe, maybe the next time they give, they will finally believe that they are good. They will have sacrificed enough. They will have crawled on their knees enough to have proven somehow that finally they are decent folks. It never quite works out that way. However, generosity, one of the easiest ways I can explain it, Some of you have heard me talk about, I even forget who gave me the quote, but someone talked about the difference between sad money and happy money. Sad money is the money that we give out of coercion. Sad money is money that someone tells us you must give in order to get X. It is not internally developed. It is externally imposed. Happy money is generous money. We give because we feel called to and because we feel connected. Now, how can we tell that our lives are generous? How can we tell that we are seeing real generosity? And this is where I want to come back to this book and we give away at the end of the service today. It is not about the money. The author, Brent Kessel, is both a yogi, a decades-long practitioner of contemplative spiritual practices that he engages in regularly, daily. He is also one of the principal partners in the Abacus Financial Group, which has hundreds of millions of dollars of other people's money in the market, which is to say he is deeply spiritually grounded and he is deeply financially serious. One of the frames that he uses to ask people about where they really find generosity, about how we are living a life not of scarcity and meanness and narrowness, but of abundance and joy. He describes it as the difference between the wanting mind and the heartfelt goals. I'm going to read you a list of those, but I'm going to give you an example of wanting mind as he tells it in this book, It's Not About the Money. He talks about a dentist who was one of his clients who he'd had a long-standing relationship with, and this dentist had done quite well. The dentist had started with Mr. Kessel with $8 million in the market. And not too long after that, Brent Kessel was giving him a report that was going to say, you now have $10 million in the market. And he was expecting that this would be good news for this dentist. The dentist looked down in their meeting, saw his financial statement, saw his financial report, and looked up and said, I will be happy when I have $15 million in the market. That is wanting mind. The sense that when we get there, somehow eventually, that is the place at which we can be happy And the point of the story with the dentist is that he's not going to be happy when he has $15 million in the market. At that point, it will be $20 million in the market or $25 million in the market. Probably right now, he's got $5 million in the market, so he's probably being (laughs) tested. But I want to show you this list, this typology that he gives us, Brent Kessel gives us. The wanting mind's desires are marked by this. They are predominantly self-concerned. We do not think of others when we think of our money. We are locked within ourselves. They are grandiose or omnipotent, usually requiring more financial resources than you can reasonably expect to have or an unrealistically short time frame. I will be a multimillionaire by Monday. Grandiose, unrealistic, unless I play the lottery tonight, unattainable. Wanting mind's desires are accompanied by childlike urgency. I want it now. 
I want it now. Comparative or competitive, desires often feel like shoulds imposed by family, friends, or culture. This is the keeping up with the Joneses. They have a new car, my neighbors. I got to get a new car because that's the only way I can be happy. And insatiable, much like our dentist, as soon as one desire is satiated, the mind is on to the new one. This wanting mind concept is very similar to another Buddhist concept of the monkey mind. Never ever satisfied with the ground on which it occupies right now. Next slide. Heartfelt goals are different. They usually include benefits, not just to yourself, but to others as well. They are realistic and achievable. These are things that actually can get done. These are not pipe dreams. They are characterized not by stamping your foot, but by the capacity to be patient, to see things unfold in their time. They are originating not from the outside, not from what the Joneses are doing, but from what your heart really yearns to do, your desires, your goals, our natural goodness innate in all of us. And finally, they are my marked by a sense of profound importance. I yearn to do or to have this before I die. These kinds of goals create the conditions in which real happiness can unfold and can be a part of our life. The difference truly in many ways between the wanting mind and the heartfelt goals is that wanting minds are very often all contained in the prison in the prison of our own consciousness. They are self-conscious, whereas the heartfelt goals are conscious. There's an entry into consciousness larger than just our own. So generosity, as Brent Kessel describes it, and as I agree, generosity is grounded in the experience, not just of giving, but in the experience of belonging. It is moving beyond the consumer-driven question, which we all ask from time to time. I hope we just don't ask it too often, which is, what can you do for me? What can you do for me? What do you got to give me? Now, if we grow beyond that, we can start to ask the question, what can I do for you? That is moving towards more authentic giving. But I think there's a third step beyond it that really marks what true generosity is all about. It is this, it is the question, what can we do together? It is not just as much about you and me any longer, it is about an us, a sense of belonging to a reality, to a people bigger than just our own lives. Now, of course, generosity always is built upon individual acts and attitudes of generosity, individual virtue of generosity. But generosity, even more, it builds community. And generosity is, as Brent Kessel says, about much more than the money. And it is for this reason that we invite people who are members of this community to give to this community as a spiritual practice, which is to say regularly and mindfully. Because what we know in life is that what we practice, we become. Emerson said, be careful what you worship, because what you worship, you will become. And the word worship just means what we give worth to. A sort of counterexample to this, any Twilight Zone fans in the house? All right. Remember the masks? Remember the masks? Maybe you don't remember the title. 
It's one of my favorite really spooky episodes. It is the final night in the life of an old man, a patriarch who is dying, and he has called his son, his daughter-in-law, his two grandchildren to be by his side while he is dying. And you see that they cannot wait for the old man to go so they can get their hands on the money. And he says, and you can tell actually he's had a little bit of realization about what his life has been about. So in some ways he gets out, well, he's dying, but he gets a better fate in some ways than they do, as I'll tell you in just a second. But he says, you will get my money, everything you want at the end of the night. But first, what I'm going to ask you to do is put on four masks. And each of those masks represent their particular character defects of each of those characters. Bullying, avarice, greed, vanity. And at the end of the night, just as he is about to die, he says, you can take off your mask now because I'm about to go and you're about to get my money. And they're like rubbing their hands. And this is the Twilight Zone. So, of course, they take off their masks and their faces have formed into the shape of what their characters are like. Rod Serling, by the way. Yeah, see that one if you can. Ooh, yeah. Rod Sorling, by the way, was a Unitarian, just to give you a little bit of trivia right there. (laughs) In some ways, this episode of The Twilight Zone is kind of like a realization of that old childhood admonition that maybe some of you have told your kids or was told to you long ago, don't keep making your face because your face will what? Freeze that way. That's what this is a realization of. See, giving in a spiritual practice in our community is about trying to build within all of our lives, for all of us, those healthy, mindful practices so we can move away from a negative relationship with our money towards one in which there is truly a happy money relationship with it. When we give as a spiritual practice in this community, we are asserting the truth of what Van Gogh said, that we are not here for ourselves alone. We are not here for ourselves alone. This is the path by which generosity goes to fulfill itself. We reject the cultural value here that the one who dies with the most toys wins. Rather, what we are striving to build here is this. The realization that the one who lives most generously, their life has already become a prize. They don't have to wait to the end to realize that prize. It is one of the great paradoxes of the spiritual life that you cannot take it with you. But if you give it away, it remains your own already. John Lennon said it this way. And in the end, the love you take is equal to the love you make. That's what he was saying with that. And by the way, that's not sexual. I guess you can interpret it that way. But it is generative. It is generative. And that's the clue to the understanding of what generosity really means. Generosity is about a full relationship with creation. Break the word down. See where it comes from. Generosity, generative, generate, generations. I had to go back to the last time I took biology, which was in the 10th grade, to remember what a genus was. A genus is a class or species with common attributes. Generosity is about giving in such a way that we recognize the common attributes in our humanity and in this community. So it is not just that a generous person gives, 
But a generous person gives to that which they are a part. And in giving, they build that connection even deeper. This is why generosity is the surest sign of spiritual growth. Because if spirituality is about intimacy, belonging, connecting with creation, that generosity is a way of life by which we constitute, we make those connections real. Not theoretical, but real. The virtue of generosity is about participating in a life bigger than just our own and being joyful because we have the privilege of doing that. And I got to tell you, I witnessed this last week, just last Wednesday at the Spectrum. It was a Bruce Springsteen and the East Street Band's final show at the Spectrum. 31 shows they have done there over the years. And by the way, I've seen them at the Wachovia Center and I've seen them at the Spectrum. The Spectrum's better. It took us about 45 minutes to get to our seats because that place is hot and crowded. But that place was turned into a 17,000-person club. We weren't far off away in our seats. We were packed in and sweaty, and it felt awesome. I got to tell you, the guys are starting to get up there. <laughs> Brucey still, still puts on one, one hell of a show. So deep. So amazingly energetic. But Clarence, the big man, he does more than three quarters of the show sitting on a stool. He had some hip replacements a couple years ago. He can't stand for the whole thing. And because it is the final one of those 31 shows, the first arena that Bruce ever played when he left behind the clubs because he was getting too popular, it was at the Spectrum. The place is so filled with memory and love. And it was the place that he played the night after John Lennon was shot. And he said, sometimes in life there are things that happen to us that we don't know what to do with. And all we can do is play. Because sometimes life is just that painful. So there could have been the occasion... And I could have forgiven them for this last Wednesday night of a bunch of old guys still really at the top of their game, but starting to know they're closer to the end than to the beginning. It could have been a bunch of older guys lamenting the past, engaging in some nostalgia. It could have been a kind of mournful procession of starting to say goodbye to a place they loved. But it wasn't. It was absolutely joyous. For about half the show, Max Weinberg song, the, the drummer, he's going out to start the Tonight Show in L.A. with Conan. And so his 18-year-old son, Jay Weinberg, sat in on almost half those songs. And I got to tell you, that was really cool to see that young guy playing with all these old, great players. And in many ways, if you've been to Bruce shows over the years, you know he likes to sort of give a mission statement at some point throughout the concert. And it was the fourth song he did, Spirit of the Night, from his first CD ever, Greetings from Asbury Park. And Bruce likes to go into, he likes to go into this um, like revivalist preacher kind of thing. And so he sort of slows the song down in the middle of it. And he says, tonight is about the spirit of love. Tonight is about the spirit of rock and roll. Tonight is about the spirits of the spectrum. That's the mission statement for that concert. Because the thing is, is that in that, he went from grieving to generosity. A Bruce Springsteen and the E Street Band show is never just about the band. It's about doo-wop and Dylan. It's about Celtic foot stomping to all the way to Curtis Mayfield. 
even the late, great, much-missed Joe Strummer. The request from the audience was London Calling, and Bruce rocked it. And for a guy who came of age during the age of punk, that was a really cool thing for me to see. A Bruce show is not about Bruce, because he is a musical universalist. He does not care. I do not care. We in this tradition don't care about where an idea came from. We're not concerned with purity. What we're concerned with, what Bruce is concerned with, does it inspire joy? Does it take you to a place of transcendence? Does it help you sing? Does it, in the words of the song that he sang to us on Wednesday night, does it help you raise your hand and say, yes, I am a participant. I am here, it's a good thing, and shout it out that it is. He and the band and all of us there, in that sweaty 17,000-person club that he turned it into, we were participating in a life larger than our own. You see, the generations come and the generations go. Buildings are built, and then buildings come down. In many ways, what Bruce was doing was realizing the wisdom of the book of Ecclesiastes, which says the generations come and the generations go. And we as human beings do not have full measure of the beginning and the end. But Ecclesiastes' answer to that is generosity. The Hebrew is tashlit, which some of you might know is cast your bread upon the waters. Cast your bread upon the waters and it will be returned to you. Give away who you are and you will get back manifold. Drummers age and younger drummers come in and they keep the beat. See, once we accept that impermanence is part of everything... Once we can accept that, we can still know there is the song. There is that spirit in the night that still sings to us and indeed sings our own lives. And we can recognize that through this animation of our lives, the joy, the really foundational joy is that we get to participate at all. <laughs> that is the miracle. When we get to participate when we give with love and generosity in our hands and our hearts, what we know, not just in our minds, but we know in our bones, is we are released from the hell of our own loneliness. Because we know our work will be completed by other hands and by the hands of life itself. So at the end, i got to tell you, at the end of this nearly three-hour concert and a six-song encore, they did a song called Kitty's Back. I think everyone in the audience would hoping he would do Rosalita like the night before. Kitty's Back is not one of his most famous songs. And in fact, at first I thought it was an odd choice for an ending. But Kitty's Back is about a return. At the end, still there is a return. And he kept singing and singing and singing and extending for what seemed like an eternity. Ten minutes, twelve minutes, fifteen minutes. I can't, I'm not going to try and sing it. But it's a bunch of whoa, whoa, whoa's. And it's all right. He's saying it's all right that the building is coming down because the spirit in the night is still there. It's all right. This past week I read something by a guy named Balbir Mathur, who is the head of a really neat group called Trees for Life. I'll encourage you to look that up when you get the chance. And he was capturing the spirit of what I saw in Bruce and the band this past week. Balbir said, I serve. I do the dance that I must. 
I plant the trees, but I am not the doer of this work. I am the facilitator. I am the instrument. I am just one part of the symphony. I know there is an overall scheme to this symphony that I cannot understand. But in some way, we are each playing our own part. Generosity, as the Who invited us to do, says join together in the band. (laughs) Become a participant. Become a part. Recognize it is not just about your own individual giving and that others will meet you in that. And so I'll leave you with this question. What is your part to play? But that's not enough of a question. Because at the same time that you are asking yourself, what is your part to play? Make sure that you're asking yourself this question. Am I listening to the larger symphony in which my own work takes its shape? And only because of that larger symphony, I have the privilege of playing and doing my dance in the first place. Amen. May you live in blessing. Let's pray together. Divine Spirit of the song, the ground of being from which all orchestras and all symphonies spring. May our capacity be this day and in days to come that we may know the sound of our song, the notes in our chords, and the harmony to which we are called to be a part. May our lives be generous, not just our hands, not just our thoughts, but may our whole lives be generous so that our whole lives can be an offering back to this life in love. Amen.